Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Welcome to another episode of Any Honey in the New. Uh, we've been talking for season three about experience and subjectivity, and we've discussed a bunch of different aspects of what that means. And the goal has been to get to this season finale about decision making. Uh, Anthony's got a lot of experience and interest in learning. We have an interest in artificial intelligence that we hope to have a season about soon. And to lay the groundwork for that, we had to understand what it meant for intelligence. Sorry, <laughs> had a nice little bug fly in my nose. <laughs> <laughs> and I see um, you swatted that bug away. What made you choose that decision? Oh, great segue. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so we wanted to introduce one last component before we got into decision-making, and that's habits. And so that's a very good – that was a reaction. I had maybe not a habit, but what is the difference between, uh, like, an impulse or, or instinctive reaction and something like a habit? And what's the difference between, like, an addiction or obsession – and what we might call second nature. Would you say you have an addiction to swatting flies? Uh, no, I, I don't obsess about doing it. In fact, I would probably rather not do it. Um, but it it's like it happens before I realize that I'm doing it. So I don't feel like I'm deciding to swat at the fly. That's an interesting uh, choice of words there. Like, I would totally agree with your assessment, right? Like, I don't think anybody... Um, they probably do at some point choose to swat something. I would never use the word like obsess over that unless you have like a, you know, a Tourette tick kind of thing and you just like swat at the air, which is a totally different thing. Mm. Um, but the way that you just characterized that, I found uh, very interesting. What was the exact word that you said at the very end? Uh, well, I mentioned about contrasting with second nature. But I don't think that's what you're referring to. If only I could re re rewind the recording. Because <laughs> I already forgot the word. Um, anyway, moving along. <laughs> I'm going to leave these this part of the outtakes in the recording because this is actually like a funny behind the scenes. You can see how the decision-making process affects right, us in, right. real, in real time. <laughs> yeah. And actually, uh, speaking of the decisions, um, in when I record, uh, when, sorry, when I'm editing, I have to like make this decision as to whether something is uh, keepable or not. And a lot of times, like I kind of edit out the stuff where I start stuttering um, <laughs> because I just don't like it, and you're so well composed. And usually, that's my perception of it. So there's a bit of a perception there too. Um, but, you know, last episode was pretty heavily ed edited, I should say. And we kind of, you know, planned it that way. We had, like, marks where we were talking through some stuff, and we just had to pause and think about the next thing. So I just wanted to illustrate that for our viewers and listeners. Yeah, yeah. And uh, first of all, I'm very grateful that you do the editing because I don't really want to have to make those decisions. Um, but it is funny, then, that I can stutter and stammer, and you wouldn't uh, necessarily pick up on it and i would be like oh gosh i'm such a mumbling idiot <laughs> you know we're so judgmental of ourselves and i think that maybe that's something that goes into this discussion about instinct and habit we talked last session about reflection and this fact that thinking can think about thinking 
I think we're we're often focused on how did I come off or what am I thinking or doing like we're we're thinking of it in an in an arch of a story of a narrative and so analyzing that story and trying to bring coherence and consistency to that story or maybe adventure and randomness whatever it is that that we're wanting to craft our story around um, I think tends to make us focus on our own foibles and and glitches and so on yeah you um in talking about that you reminded me that in like the decision making process i'll just characterize this around the editing right because it's top of mind um when i first started doing it for us i would get stuck in these like decision making loops where i'm just like do i cut this do i not cut this let me listen to the next part let me re-listen to the beginning part and see if it makes sense within that narrative or um and I would just like kind of, kind of obsess over the decision making part itself, um, not necessarily like whether, like it's valid or not. But I would just kind of sit there and like constantly go back and forth in this loop of should I cut this part out or not. And uh, eventually, I trained myself off of it, and maybe it's more habituated now because I can make these decisions much faster. Than, mm-hmm. than I was able to in the beginning. Like, more or less after a recording, I know, okay, there was this part that probably should be cut. The rest of it, like, there might be some stutters or whatever. Uh, we can leave that stuff. It's totally fine. Like, nobody really cares about that sort of thing. And honestly, I don't really care either. And also, in that way, I was able to use evaluation to make my decisions faster. So, like, do I care about how perfect the clip is or would I rather just be done with the editing process faster so there's a little bit of a balancing act there no that's really good and what's coming out of that is like you identified your values and your criteria and then it helped you to speed up the evaluative process so you were applying the norms more quickly right and had got a the reflection gave you a greater grasp of what it is that you were trying to accomplish so you were able to weed out some of the alternatives because there's a lot of different ways that you could edit these these videos. You could do it for comedic effect. You could do to make them more didactic. Um, you could try to make them more exciting. You know, all the different ways that you could craft the video based on the material that, that you have to work with. Uh, so I think it's really interesting when we talk about decision-making, all those different components that we've already been highlighting throughout the season, showing how they, they all come together and interplay in that process. You just blew my mind when you talked about the 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 applying values because I had never thought about decision making as applying values at different I guess rates of speed hmm and uh, like it does make sense it definitely makes sense I mean how do you go from the example that we were going to introduce <laughs> when we started breaking into this before I sidetracked us <laughs> was uh, <laughs> you know making decisions on a basketball court you're playing the game right you you for instance get the rebound and I, we play together a lot so i'll just use this i run down the court and you're bringing the ball up to try and get a fast break opportunity and you have me you have yourself you have another player maybe down in the post or out on the wing uh, and you make this decision of where to pl- pass the ball or do you take it to the rim yourself mm. and there's probably like five or six different decisions you can make in that instant and if you were to answer that question as quickly as possible, what do you do? Yeah, outlet pass. I'd look to see which one of you is closer to the basket or which one is uh, I've got a clearer path to throw the ball to you. You're a passer by nature. 
Yeah, yeah. If I don't trust my own shot, and if also you're already breaking down the court, you're going to get there faster. The ball always travels faster by air than by dribble. And you don't. I, I, would you say that you like think through all this stuff while you're playing, or like how does that process come about? Great, great question. I mean, so just to answer it quickly, no, I don't really. I that's just my what I do. I, I turn, I grab the ball, and I take one dribble while I analyze where everybody's at. And if I can launch it down the court, let's do it. If I have to manage for the defense, then let's slow it down probably and get one of you guys to come back up and help with a pick or ball handling. Um, but but I didn't always. Like, that isn't how I started playing when I was seven and eight, right? Like, I had to learn how to dribble and not lose the ball. And so I would very much concentrate on dribbling the ball in front of me which meant that I wasn't looking for someone to pass to. <laughs> and then uh, I discovered how much I loved passing. And so then I was always looking for the pass and sometimes would make risky, really poorly advised passes because I thought, if this works, it's going to be brilliant. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, get a lot of turnovers. So there was like, throughout the process of learning to play the game, I would start with skills until I had those masters. And then I would start with strategy until I had like, common game plans and then i would start on um innovating like like trying to um improvise in the situation right but those only got built on after i had already layered the the earlier habits and skills and that's why i wanted to bring up habits before we got too far into this yeah and uh you talked a lot about the learning process there which i think when we think about decision making typically uh people don't really bring learning into it they think of it just as like, you know, yes or no binary choice or, you know, maybe there's multiple choices, but we don't ever think about how one comes to accept that one choice might be better than another choice or maybe like it normally would be better, but not in this instance because of context or whatever your values are. Right. Uh, for instance, when I was learning to play basketball, um, I would obsess over trying to dribble without looking at my hands but i didn't ever think i could get there i was like i just don't understand how i'm ever going to get to play without looking at my hands and it was actually the same for typing i never thought that i'd go from like the two finger typing to being able to type without looking at the keys huh. um but i think one thing that you talked about there was like pushing on innovation even if you can't do it because it's in that that you learn different experiences of how like the ball moves where players are going to be and you make that bad choice there and maybe like players on the court kind of get mad they're like oh i was open on the wing why didn't you see that but at the same time you're making yourself a better player by knowing one now you have outside feedback that that wasn't the best decision two the ball didn't get to where it was trying to go so you know mm -hmm. you need to adjust where you're throwing it or maybe make the read a little bit faster or uh, you know, track the player better. There's a lot of different things you could do there. And it's in that, that being able to make a bad decision that you realize that it's not a good decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. And I do want to point out, I think there's a difference. So you learn a skill and we talk about the fundamentals. Tim Duncan was just known as Mr. Fundamental, right? He knew how to shoot a ball off the backboard and use the angles. He knew how to move his feet to position his defender away from being able to block his shot. Um, and he learned these skills through repeated practice. There's a lot of repetition involved. And we talked last episode that repetition isn't the same thing as reflection. 
you know, winding gears, doing the same thing over and over again isn't necessarily learning. But there is something about learning that facilitates turning something that was initially complex into, um, I'll call it second nature. It seems easy. We don't even have to think about it. Like, when's the last time that you really thought about taking your next step? Right? It was probably when the when the train was treacherous or where there was some kind of obstacle in your normal everyday life, you're just like, I'm going over there <laughs> and you just do it, right? You don't right. think about taking the next step. But when you were, you know, one year old, that was a very different story. Yeah, and if you think about the walking analogy, the only time you think about taking the next step is when you trip. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, I better not do that again. Let me make sure I'm watching where my feet are going for a little bit. And it's why... Well, kind of- Go ahead. Well, just real quick, I think there is, uh, at least for me, and I think it's true for others, hiking might require paying attention to your next step, right? Like, just knowing that the ground is uneven and has loose gravel, like, you become more conscientious about things that you might take at second nature. So when something becomes second nature, it doesn't mean that you can't reflect on it or bring it to the forefront of your thought. Um, You just don't have to, which allows you to do more with your mental activity. Yeah, that's a great comparison because as you were saying that, I was thinking, uh, just like I said with basketball, right, watching my hands while I'm dribbling, um, maybe I'm just a horribly inexperienced hiker, but I realized that every time I hike, I'm actually like looking at my feet the whole time because the ground is so uneven. Uh, And I don't know if I'm sure like super experienced hikers who like hike Everest and come back alive, like when they do like a basic trail in like the Sandias with just a little gravel, they're not even paying attention to their feet, but I'm definitely more unsure footing. They probably are much more aware of what's going on. You should ask maps about how much she cares, you know, watches. I know she cares about her next step, making sure it's a safe step, but I wonder how much she has to pay attention to those steps. (laughs) Special edition, uh, special guest for the next episode. Right. (laughs) So, so we could, I, you know, just want to throw out habit and habituation there and just point out there is differences in kind, right? We talk about addiction where maybe somebody um, has a particular goal or outcome that they want to achieve, maybe a feeling or a chemical reaction or whatever, uh, and fall into patterns of behavior to achieve that outcome. I'm not necessarily sure that's the same thing as developing a skill, right? In, in developing a skill, you're thinking about the how and the why and you do it enough times that you don't have to think about every step. Your your body develops its muscle memory and its familiarity with the with how that motion goes and so on. Whereas with addiction, it almost feels like you're so fixed on the outcome that the behavior happens without you really thinking about it. It's like the opposite of deliberation. Yeah, I would say the, the skill development with addiction typically comes in the form of um, trying to get away with it. Right. The, you know, hiding, you know, alcohol, for instance, around the house and uh, people not noticing or being so good at masking that you're not sober, uh, that 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 part, like probably you could characterize as a skill, um, although a very destructive one. Yeah, no, that's right. A different different focus, maybe than than the how to achieve your whatever it is that you're the outcome that you're seeking right and then uh you mentioned compulsion uh and obsession and impulsion earlier would you mind just characterizing those yeah it's really difficult to 
distinguish, you know, what is the me that thinks and what are the thoughts that are impressed upon me. Uh, so just talking about compulsion is going to get into some murky waters about, you know, does my body make me do something? What does that mean? What's the difference between me and my body? Right. So I, I'm going to just set aside the question of what is the self? <laughs> Who is the agent involved? And, and just loosely say that there does seem to be a difference between feeling like I have to do something and I have to do it this way versus having made a decision out of these alternatives. That's the thing that I want to do and that's how I want to do it. Or um, through habit, having developed a skill and it just being the way that I do things, but I could do it, you know, I could focus and choose a different way to do it. Right. So, so I feel like compulsion is a little less um, intentional. Yeah. Maybe might be the best way to say it. Uh, just to give an example, because it helps myself usually think through these things. It's like uh, I want and aim, you know, practice to eat healthier. Right. But every once in a while, I just have this like, essentially, it feels insatiable. Right. To just eat more than two slices of pizza it's like i got this pizza here and like if i eat one i'll be fine like i'll survive so my goal is met right i'm not hungry anymore if i eat two i'll feel a little bit more satiated like i'll have you know done a little bit more than i probably should but having two i still recognize as not being the the end of like whatever diet or health plan i'm on or whatever uh, but then I'm like, I just feel like I can't even stop it like a freight train coming. Like, okay, I got to eat two or three more slices before I can mm. hang it up. Give me that cheese and salt, baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. And like you said, there are factors that play into that compulsion. And sometimes, like, I do feel that there's a little bit of a decision on my end. There, like, I feel in this incredible urge to eat that extra slice. But I also then just say, F it, I'm going to eat this anyway. <laughs> and some, some compulsions are very much not like that. But I just wanted yeah. to uh, use this pizza and poke fun at myself and, at the same time. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think there's sometimes, at least I've had this experience where before I have that, that usually for me it's the fourth slice. Like three is where I should have stopped and the fourth one's like, oh, but I just want a little bit more. Just a little and bit sometimes more. <laughs> that pause happens before I eat it and and then there's deliberation should I or shouldn't I and sometimes I'm eating the fourth slice going why did I do this like I didn't even think about it I just like did it and and was regretting it <laughs> <laughs> as you cry to yourself but you're just like oh it's so good <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> um, one other thing that you made me think about and it's not the same as compulsion um, but maybe it's it feels similar as reaction yeah, uh, I was thinking about, you know, like uh, you and uh, somebody are getting into an argument, right? And uh, the low level escalation, the reaction is to say something back, right? But as the as the conversation escalates more and more, uh, at some point, somebody throws a punch or something like that. And the punch feels like a reaction. And then, of course, there's a reaction to that punch. Mm. Yeah, so I guess are you asking what's the role of decision-making in that or how much of that is habit? I think right I'm, now I'm uh, just articulating other means that are like 
uh, maybe part of this decision-making tree. They're all involved in decision-making at some point, but uh, we're just kind of teasing out the very conscious decisions from the what feels like subconscious or unconscious decisions. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that that's very helpful because I, I did not think of reaction as a decision usually, so it's a good contrast. Uh, yeah, so maybe we should take all the things we've discussed this season, perspective, perception, value, desire, norms, language. Let's bring it all together and maybe look at a case study or two about decision-making. What better decision to talk about in the NBA than the decision? Ooh, finally a super episode. <laughs> <laughs> the decision. Uh, I, so we mentioned this in, what was it, season one, right? Yeah. We brought it up as part of narrative. And I feel like uh, narrative is going to sneak its head in here at some point. But I just want to clarify that we're going to do our best to avoid any narrative aspects of this conversation because we're focusing on the decision-making end. Um, but just to characterize that decision really quickly, if everybody remembers summer of 2010, LeBron was a free agent for the first time in his career, and he had the choice to go to Chicago, uh, the Clippers, the Knicks, the Miami Heat. Uh, he could re-sign with Cleveland, and I think there was a sixth team, but I just can't remember what that team was. Did I say the Bulls? Yeah, okay. you said, yeah. Yeah, I think you got them all. <clears throat> there was a sixth team that just didn't have much of a chance. Maybe it was the Nets, but... Uh, hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's where that's where that stands. Yeah, and I, I think uh, just to emphasize what you already pointed out is we're not really trying to evaluate how, whether his decision was right or wrong, but more what were the factors that lead into making a decision like the decision, and how can we bring to bear all the different aspects of subjectivity that we've been discussing? So uh, you know, let's start at the beginning. Perception. Where, where, what kind of perceptual elements are coming into LeBron's decision in 2010? Perception, uh, when you say that from his perspective, or uh, external perception of his decision? Uh, I think we're trying to approach this, you know, not that we are LeBron and know, not that he's articulated everything about making that decision, but pretend, speculate that we are in LeBron's shoes um, what is it from the inside to make a decision like this? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, from what I remember about the, like what was available between the cities at the time was uh, this perception of him, uh, he probably perceived it himself, he wants to be the greatest, right? And at that time he recognized he didn't have any championships. And I think we all can agree that the current perception, the major general perception media perspective uh, perception is that the, to be the best you have to have championships and you have to have multiple championships and what did lebron say uh when he finally was announced with his ultimate decision spot uh, what was the famous line that he said that related to that perception do you remember i don't remember uh it was the counting of championships he's like i'm here not to win one championship, not oh, two, yeah. not three, not four, not five, not six. He just kept going up, right? So the perception very much for him was uh, to be the best, you have to beat the best, and you have to have championships to do so. Are there yeah. other aspects of perception for LeBron that you can think of? Well, maybe, but I also just want to highlight, like, 
even though we're talking about these kind of sequentially, you've already brought in criteria that the norms around basketball is that to be great is is to get is to win, to help your team win championships. Uh, and there were values that were associated with that, like, well, desire, the desire that he wanted to be the greatest, values around what, what that meant was team team success, and then the norm of you have to win rings in order to be considered the greatest. I think perceptual elements, you know, if we want to take it from the very, from the least metaphorical sense, yeah. you know, he's hearing uh, things on media, he's he's seeing uh, his everyday life and the team around him in Cleveland and how difficult it's been to even just get to the finals. Um, I think he's he's taking in the inputs of his current existence and, and state of affair and then imagining, uh, using his imagination to consider what it would be like in another scenario. Um, so, so the perceptual elements are probably pretty pretty uh introductory like it's just the inputs that are serving to that he's going to have to decide among yeah that's a great point um like you said the media uh there was several media narratives right it's like not just the media narrative around him as like one of the all-time greats but also uh, where he should be going and then fans also saying where he should be going so obviously he's listening to those conversations uh his agent uh giving him information as to like which cities can pay you x amount of dollars over x amount of years um and then how to like either maximize that uh take that for whatever happens next um then there's you know stuff that his family is saying and his own state of living in cleveland right he's like probably one of the most wealthy people in cleveland at this time and he uh you know can pretty much make his own future as he sees fit so he's kind of Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet in this scenario. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I mean, there's other factors that he's considering. It's, uh, you know, financials that you kind of brought up, the lives for his family. You know, he has a wife and ends up having kids and where are they going to grow up and how's that going to impact them? But also, like, having grown up in Ohio, being Ohio's favorite son, like the the emotive aspects of performing at home basically right. and, and uh being a part of that community he's very he was very uh integrated into the social political fabric of of akron and Cle cleveland so if he moves away will that continue do they lose that support and he was pretty intentional about keeping the akron stuff active but you know those are things he had to consider yeah and i'll just bring this back to something i mentioned earlier but the decision making process you're already weighing all these valuables uh, variables, not valuables. They are valuable, though. Um, you're already weighing all these variables. And so, like, even, you know, editing a podcast, the making one decision or another, there, it's not clear-cut what should or should not happen. So there's a little bit of pressure there. And for LeBron, who's literally the center of a whole lot of people's conversations, that pressure becomes both internalized and externalized. So I would even add the pressure aspect of it to uh, to his perception. Yeah, not wanting to disappoint himself or his fan base, wanting to, you know, the drive and ambition for being the greatest. Uh, is that a compulsion? Is that, you know, how did that value arise is an interesting story. Not that we're going to be able to generate that, but... Um, 
its situatedness is going to also impact what he would consider as a means of what what consider what is considered actually satisfying that ambition. Does he have to bring the championship home to Cleveland for it to be uh, truly satisfied, or can he go win that that ring anywhere? He was able to do both, right? But in the moment of of 2010, he he couldn't know that those that, that he was going to be able to do both, right? So, um, I think we covered perception pretty well, and we've tackled values in this. Do we need to add more to the values aspect, or are we trying to do yeah. this sequentially? No, no, I think we're fine. I think we're just pulling all the different stuff in. We've kind of mentioned, you know, from his perspective, he was limited, didn't know that he would be able to both go to Miami and win rings and then come back to Cleveland and win win, um, and eventually Los Angeles. So he can't know the future from his perspective. He can only go based on what he knows um, in the moment. Quick question for you. Yeah. Um, uh, Just to bring in some terminology from last episode, but if it's too uh, difficult a question, feel free to just move past this. Uh, But what would you say is his perspectival uh, horizon? because of how you know how much of influence he has yeah that's that's great so obviously i'm again i'm not lebron i wasn't in a situation we're completely speculating but i think we can imagine he him fluctuating between a very limited perspective of let me close off all the uh, i don't want to hear the talking heads in the media i need to listen to to just my wife and myself and my maybe my mother or whatever her, the family that he considers and his agent uh, yeah and his agent and then let me consider the financials right he's he could restrict his horizon very much to the kind of life that he wants to live with his family or he could shift the horizon by saying well let me take a broader scope at the history of basketball what kind of factors need to be brought into this decision in order to satisfy this bigger picture where I do need to take into consideration what people think of me and what I do. Um, and, and even himself, like, what do I value about the game? What do I think I bring to the game? You know, if he shifts from just his livelihood concerns to like legacy concerns, I think that's a shifting horizon there. I am actually really glad I asked this question because last week I was struggling to understand how somebody could go about shifting their horizon in this case. And the way you characterize it, I think this is something that we all do, you know, maybe not daily, but when we're making big decisions for ourselves or families, we do this stuff, our, you know, too. Like you're deciding to buy a house with your spouse or partner and you're like, oh, do we go for the big house because we can afford it? Or do we find something more limiting? Do I think about just me? Do I think about my, my partner? What if there's kids involved? Do we, are we planning on having kids? You kind of go through these like shifts, uh, bringing the scale in and out constantly. Yes, yeah. And so you're imagining all your alternatives. You are reflecting on uh, your goals and the situations in which you could achieve your goals and what it would take to accomplish them. You're interpreting the various alternatives to understand how they, what what each of them might entail, right? Trying to project into the future, the the various outcomes of each of those choices. Uh, so a lot of the things that we have talked about this season on subjectivity, I think we're seeing, don't come in sequentially. They're all kind of interacting together as this whole combination of thinking of being a su- a subject. 
And, um, okay, so I think I now understand uh, this aspect of it. So I think you were about to say something else before I segued. Language. I, I was going to bring in our topics on language because it's when, a topic that you and I love to discuss and we seem to get stuck in quite often, but so far we haven't really brought it into this decision process. So I'm interested in how LeBron... You know, we were going to stay away from narrative, but part of it is how did he tell the story to himself and his family? How did he sell that this is what he wanted to do to himself? And then how did he communicate and portray this to others? Well, he decided to have a big media presentation called The Decision, right? And by giving it the the, the putting the def definite article in there, it gives it this momentous kind of feel. So there's a lot of emotive and uh, conceptual apparatus going into just presenting a free agency signing as the decision. And that language plays a major factor in how he understands and represents the decision-making process. Yeah, that's a really good point. And especially as we know about in the aftermath, right? Literally five other teams and markets you could extend that to because the fans in those of those teams are also affected. Yeah. Take that for what you will, right? But the, there's like five other teams and markets that are going to be disappointed by the decision no matter what. And um, and one of the, to me, one of the most prevailing arguments after the decision was the fact that he called it the decision, the decision, right? He's like, how could you be so, uh, you know, self-inflationary that you're like, you're, you're making one decision for one human being on the planet and calling it the decision as if to articulate this is the most important decision that everybody will get to be a part of. And I was uh, texting you about this, but um, Kevin Durant later that same offseason signed an extension with the Oklahoma City Thunder. And everybody after the decision had such a bad taste in their mouths. And I'm not trying to like, you know, articulate my own personal feelings here. I just this is like essentially what the narrative was. Um, mm -hmm. Everybody after that was saying how um, how Kevin Durant is the true hero because he's you know arguably the second best player in the NBA even at this ripe young age, um, and he is uh, confidently signing with the team that he knows he wants to stay with. We know later on that that is in fact not true, and that he does it quietly. He doesn't make a big scene about it. He just signs this extension. The Oklahoma City Thunder announce it, and that's all there is to it. And so, mm. in this way, uh, like the ma the media and all these losing markets, essentially, like paint LeBron as a villain and as Kevin Durant as a hero, but just because of the simple way that the decision was made, and then Kevin Durant's the decision was made. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. I um, thought it might be interesting to compare and contrast LeBron's the decision in 2010 pre-championship to Giannis uh, his loyalty and commitment to the Bucks and re-signing which helped them bring in other players which eventually led to him getting a chip staying in a small market with the team that drafted him so um, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit not to evaluate whether one decision was right and the other one was wrong but just the differences, the different factors that led to their different decisions. Yeah. Um, so we, I guess we've talked about all that from the decision standpoint. And uh, Giannis, 
uh, and I think you probably are a much bigger Giannis fan than I am. You know much more about his history than I do. Uh, but so please feel free to step in any time. Uh, the way that he has articulated his own values, you know, through the media or even quotes from himself, is mostly around uh, loyalty and hard work. You know, he's got that blue collar work ethic. Everybody talks like infamously about how hard he works in the gym and I even think it was like during the final or maybe not the finals but uh during the playoffs this season he had like one bad game and like didn't leave the arena until like one in the morning working Mm. on the the very thing that he made like one mistake on and was like never gonna this is never gonna happen again (laughs) Um, yeah yeah sorry go ahead well, just uh, biographically, you know, uh, being on the streets in Greece and having to fend for him and his family, uh, I think it. I think we can speculate that there is an interesting drive and ambition for someone that was a survivor, right? And and the fact that he's turned that same kind of survival mindset into a scrappy work ethic, and then has the this might be overstating it, but I want to say gratitude of having been drafted and this opportunity to to move on to the international stage with professional sports. Like this is an amazing financial opportunity. It's a it's an ability to live out as a dream, right? So there's this whole buildup of uh, ambition and drive, but also humility and gratitude that factors into a very t- different type of personality and persona right so who Giannis presents as to the public is very different than who LeBron who was raised in the spotlight and even as a teenager in junior high and high school was getting national attention for how well he played basketball and was on the cover of Time magazine when he was 18 right or or not Time was was it Time he was on the cover I'm pretty sure of Time when he like right when he got drafted but he was on the cover of I want to say Sports Illustrated when he was 16. Yeah, so so like a very different history. He was escalated mm-hmm. into the national stage at a young age, had to learn how to navigate all that. And so it was pretty media savvy. Um, and so there's always been a sense of artifice around how LeBron presents himself to the public. Whereas Giannis, it feels like he didn't just have us peek behind the curtain. He was like, let's take that curtain rod down, <laughs> right? Like, I'm just glad to be here. You guys are part of this journey with me. And so very different attitudes and approaches, uh, which, re- you know, reflects on how he goes about making decisions, right? He's right. He's got goals. He knows that it takes work to achieve them. So he develops the habits and skills to achieve them. And then just, um, you, he's a very reflective individual, I think. I think the ways that he responded to the questions after winning a championship this past year reveals that he has very deep thoughts about what makes a meaningful life, what matters in life. He keeps talking about how it's a game, and if we're not having fun playing the game, it's not worth it. Like, this is not, we're not solving world hunger or something like that. And so he insists on having fun, not not making the, the game mechanical. And so one of the strategies for the Bucks is play random, like be random, <laughs> and always change it up. Don't just have your game plan going down the floor every single time. So I just I just feel like those kind of factors reveal someone who's who's going to make his decisions less on a financial and 
pop, you know, popular opinion kind of framework, and much more on what do I value in life and what will achieve those those values. Yeah, you talk about the values, and I just want to throw this in real quick because we mentioned this in our values episode. But it's not just about the values that he himself cultivated, but it's. Uh, you know, every like everybody, he's a product of his own upbringing and environment. Like you said, his family experienced homelessness in Greece. So one, he's from another country. He doesn't. He didn't. He wasn't raised with the American system of values, um, even like regionally from Milwaukee, right? Um, and LeBron was. He grew up in the United States. He actually grew up in Ohio. So he uh, he did experience poverty as well. But it was through the lens of his own community, just like Giannis was through the lens of his community in Greece. Um, and you always, uh, I'm always thinking about this because uh, refugees have a different sense of, of like work ethic and it trickles down mm. as a family value. Uh, and my wife is a product of this as well. She, talk, she talks about it all the time. It's kind of funny. Um, but you told me this story of Giannis like having shipped all his money back to his family in Greece and was like essentially broke, right? Trying to get to a Bucks game in what was it, his rookie or sophomore year? I think it was his second year, but it might have been his rookie year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's like literally running to the game and a family like sees him and is like, oh, you're Giannis. What, why are you running in the winter? <laughs> he's like, I need to get to this game. And they just like take him to the game. So yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> instead of like lavishly spending, which was the uh, the American attitude when you come across uh, come across money at the time, and I'm not faulting anybody for for this behavior or decision. I'm just saying that's essentially it is what it is. Call back. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you yeah, yeah. had a different had a different perspective. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. Um, there's so many great stories about how he's adapted through you know, to the shift into having money and how he's continued to reach out to uh, the refugees, to Greek community, to um, Nigeria, and just a lot of different uh, ways that he's demonstrated that that recognition of how he got to the situation that he's in. But I, going back to the decision-making, for LeBron, you can speculate that he really did have a lot of live options on the table and ha and was probably taking them all relatively seriously. He, he definitely wanted to win. There had been conversations about him and Bosch teaming up in Chicago with D. Rose. Um, there was talk about <clears throat> maybe all three of them, Wade and, and Bosch, uh, going to Chicago. There was talk about going to the Knicks, going to the Clippers and forming super teams there, or at least taking advantage of the major market for business initiatives. Right. So he had a lot of different things that he was weighing factors, but it seemed like he legitimately could have justified any of those choices, even staying in Cleveland. You know, there was a lot of motivation and reasons to stay, which I think is why so many people in Ohio felt betrayed that he didn't, because they only saw that those reasons. They didn't see the other reasons to leave. Whereas with Giannis, you know, there was there were all the what ifs. What if he goes to Golden State with Curry? What if, you know, he joins another team, super team, and gets his rings that way? Or... A lot of criticism, like Giannis is a tremendous athlete, but he's got some gaps in his game, and the Bucks don't seem to be filling those gaps very well. He can't win here. It's a small market team. They're never going to be able to attract the players that they need in order to win. And um, Giannis could have paid attention to those narratives and said, yeah, it doesn't look like I can win here. I'm out. 
but instead like doubled down <laughs> and it almost feels like it was less of a like i think definitely there was a decision i'm sure he had to consider his alternatives but it certainly felt less like he was seriously ever considering going it was more like i want to be here can can you as an organization milwaukee help make my decision easier by saying that you're committing to me the same way that I'm committing to you. I'm pretty sure that after he signed that extension, he actually said that he wanted to be in Milwaukee for the rest of his career, which just kind of shows that level of commitment and loyalty that he has. Um, But also, I mean, I don't think you make that kind of a statement without thinking that like, maybe this decision is not as complicated as other decisions I've made in the past or other people are making, right? It's like not the same situation. Like for, like you said, for him, it was what if scenarios and everybody is like around the league is basically watching. If he signs this extension, then I don't need to worry about free agent money for the next couple of years because he's not available, right? But if he mm-hmm. doesn't, now I have to change everything I'm doing as a franchise to make sure. And so uh, for these franchises, it's harder for them because they're waiting on this decision. But for him, it's like, well, I don't really want to play with anybody else because they're not the level that I think they should be. Or, you know, I I think I have everything I need right here and right now. Um, Whereas with LeBron, right, he very much was looking at all the different places that he could go and all the different scenarios that those places could do. I remember it being part of uh, the Bulls. And the Heat and the Knicks' pitch, at the very least, of like essentially saying, like, here's what we can offer you. And also, we are offering that when you come, you can pretty much get any player in the league to join. And you just tell us who, and we'll make it happen. Like, so hmm. he's kind of receiving the same exact scenario in different marketplaces. And then now the decision isn't just about the team, but there's all this other stuff that now I can fantasize about because it's not just about basketball. Like, basketball is the same in all these places. Right. Right, right, right. No, that's a good point. Um, So with those kind of analyses, again, we're doing a lot of speculation. We're not LeBron. We're not Giannis. But uh, to kind of tie this up... Uh, stop imagining. No. <laughs> uh, so to tie this kind of up, uh, I know that you've been wanting to get to the topic of decision making all season, rearing to go, Something and to talk about learning. So, so here's your pitch to, to talk about learning and why decision making is important. Oh, I didn't think this would be called the Any Hoodie Podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess real quick, just to wrap up the decision. Because we, we haven't actually said it yet. Uh, he chose Miami, right? Mm-hmm. We, we know that that was the, the case. Um, the thing that I constantly think about when it comes to decision-making, we talked about how the values weigh into it, and I don't know if this is true or not, but my sense is that um, the values are probably the most uh, heavily influenced aspect of it. Because uh, they kind of like trickle throughout, right? Like the values influence the language, which influences the the actual decisions that you can make. It influences the evaluation. It, you could even say it skews the evaluation. Right? Mm. You don't really think about things that aren't outside of your value system. You kind of just turn those into negatives unless somebody presents it to you in a way that 
more aligns with your values. But even then, it's still skewing towards your values in that way. Right. Um, but just going down further, right? Uh, when we talked about Giannis, you talked about the putting in, like using the values to develop the habits that you use that essentially further reinforce those values, but maybe they're the outcomes of those values. And so even then, you know, the values are still affecting the outcome through the habituation, right? You you want to get better at playing basketball. You want to get better at dribbling the ball. So you practice things that do that for you. You also practice skills that help you practice doing that for you. Like right. you know, getting up earlier so that you can start practicing dribbling a basketball at 6 in the morning instead of doing it, you know, at school or after school or whatever the case is. So I don't think yeah. that decisions, um, they feel so isolated for us because we're just like, oh, this is going to happen, so I'm going to do this. Um, but there's so much influence there. And uh, it wasn't until this season, really, that I started thinking about how crucial uh, normativity and values are, especially, into that decision-making process. And maybe we'll talk about this at the very end, about how that might affect the learning or the other way around. Yeah. Yeah, good. I know that we've discussed various free will positions in the first season and really didn't come down on any of them because I think, I, I won't speak for you, I think um, we've talked about this and have similar views, but certainly I lean towards the idea that it might we might live in a deterministic universe and yet can't accept it in a, in a certain way. And so I keep hoping against hope and trying to find avenues to explain and account for agency and, and volunteerism, having some kind of free will. Um, so that being said, when I think about decision-making and learning, I automatically orient it in a free will kind of environment. Not that we have total control over our will in all, in all aspects and that everything is a deliberate decision, but that because we can reflect and double our situation and learn from our situation, uh, I do think it gives us some ability to plan ahead, to develop skills and habits, and to th think about our values and, and reorient our values so that maybe our reactions will be geared towards the outcomes that we want instead of uh, just whatever instinctively would happen. And you said you wouldn't speak for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um right there you just made me think about we didn't really bring this up but it feels super obvious now that even language is decision making um you know going from the the point which direction to look right um you have to learn that stuff before you like you do it but you also learn that it somebody can interpret that and reflect on it um but then you also learn that you can reflect on it and interpret it. And then you start to, you know, learn about the behaviors of people when you do things. Uh, you know, I talked about babies experiments last week and it was just thinking about, uh, you know, when babies first learn to speak, they're putting, they're kind of just saying sounds until words form. And um, I don't know if there's ever been research on this, but I wouldn't uh, be surprised if there were. Uh, but like this small theory that I have is that like babies just 
put together the right combinations of sounds. Like it always starts simple, right? The first words are usually like dada or mama or or ow or something like that. That's a very simple sound. And because we have context around that, the baby recognizes that based on our reaction that they've done something in a positive manner. And so that behavior gets reinforced. And so that's how they start learning new words and you know eventually they pick up they're able to interpret the actual sounds that we make and they're able to repeat those sounds and then they start learning like now now it's not just repetition but they can also uh, chain them together so they're not just saying the same sounds but they're doing new combinations of sounds until it makes sense to others and you know you say a new word that I've never heard before and usually the process is like okay let me try and re-pronounce that word so I know the word and then let me try and infer the definition. And if I can't do that, then I can just straight up ask, like, what does that mean? You can explain it to me. And now I have like a, a new word tool in my arsenal for communication. But it doesn't even have to be words, right? You can give me, uh, this happens all the time. We have ESP on this podcast because I'm actually <laughs> watching you for your reactions and you're watching me. And it actually happened earlier today where I kind of just left left it hanging and I was like I'm pretty sure Corbin is going to say this if I stop it here and I want you to say that and so I did and then you did and I was like I, I didn't jump for joy but I really wanted to <laughs> yeah no I definitely think that we because we do a lot of this um, people probably know because of all the rambling that we do but we don't write up a script in advance right so a lot of the way that the conversation shapes is because we're anticipating where each other wants to go not because we have it uh, all written out so uh, that's a great thing about our camaraderie, but also I think it points out about learning how there can be a deliberative aspect to decision-making and also impulses do factor in, happy accidents do factor in, right? Uh, in the child development process, there's a lot of learning from mistakes. There's a lot of just experimentation. Let me try this and see what happens. And uh, we do this as adults, right? Some of us are more adventurous and more willing to take risk and, and make mistakes and therefore learn from from them and others you know learn strategies to avoid mistakes and and maybe a little bit more um, restrained in the kind of risks that they'll take but they still have to reflect on the strategies in order to reduce those risks right so so in either approach there's a learning capacity that's being developed yeah that's a really good point um I know that this is the last episode and we've made a lot of decisions to come to this point. Um, but the thing that I want to ask you is, so this, to me, this season has really been, I think it was, it started about learning, but it really was to me about understanding experience. Mm -hmm. uh, did you have a similar uh, interpretation? Yes. Yeah. I know that uh, ultimately our goal when we even started episode one of season one was we want to talk about artificial intelligence. How are we going to get there? And we've gone all kinds of different routes and every time felt like we're not quite ready to, to talk. I feel like this season's discussion on subjectivity and the components of experience has laid a good groundwork for a lot of the things that we take as givens or as uh, assumed boundaries when we're talking about intelligence and artificial intelligence so just in the future i think uh if however many seasons we decide to go this season here we'll probably have a lot of episodes that we'll refer back to yeah 
uh, you just kind of wrap that up really nicely. And I think one of the constructs that I have when thinking about intelligence is that it happens in different ways at different levels for different organisms and structures. And maybe there's like other things, entities that think or have intelligence that we can't quite quantify. Um, you know, popular theories like the universe or the solar system or whatever. I'm not going to go so far as to say that. Um, but, you know, throughout this season, I think you could easily say that there are exhibitions of all of the topics that we talked about throughout at least the life here on Earth, right? And I'm not going to say that they're all full-blown intelligence, but there's definitely, to me, a spectra of intelligence, right? Of ex of things being able to experience. And I don't think we're still at the root of what experience is, but I hope, uh, at least I seem, I feel that I have a, a much deeper uh, grasp and I have better tools at least now to understand what experience is going forward. Nice. Yeah. And we've definitely been focused on the human experience uh, or human experiences. Maybe there isn't a the human experience. But um, I hope that we've been able to talk in enough generality that it would apply to most intelligences in general. Like normativity doesn't, I don't see any reason why it requires the human physiology to be important to thinking. Uh, same things for, for something like perspective, for horizons of understanding, for interpretation. Imagination, I feel like, should be, uh, should transcend the human experience, but maybe you know maybe it requires some kind of finitude of perspective so maybe a, a non non localizable entity that has like a, a spread out mind might have a different approach to imagination for instance or reflection um but i'm just throwing that out there i do feel like we've tried to talk about beyond the human notion of experience yeah and i uh, don't want to get preachy um but also i'll just say this quickly uh, you mentioned this way earlier in the season when talking about qualia, right? Us being able to essentially like communicate with each other because we have some sort of inference over shared experience. Like, it, I understand physically that it might not be the same as your experience, but because I have experienced something like that, then I can kind of I have a like a grounding point, an anchor point as to what it's like for you, and so then I can empathize. And I just hope that going forward, uh, you, me, our listeners um, can start to expand on this idea outside of ourselves, right? Just because we don't have that shared experience with dogs or dolphins or yeast cells, that it's like that they don't have these types of things, uh, these qualia themselves. And so then I think when we start with that point, I think we can start to build up on this idea of like, do these other creatures experience? Do other things experience? And then do they do they exhibit intelligence? Excellent. 